The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So today I'd like to um, speak to you about equanimity in body and mind and heart. As Gil often says when we're on retreat, our effort is to just be here. Very simply. And mindfulness of the body is a great way uh, in helping us to stay present. So here we are on this beautiful path that leads towards freedom. And in a retreat like this, we have a wonderful opportunity to just be present, to be here. So, um, as we cultivate equanimity in this retreat, um, we are cultivating what's considered uh, in Buddhism as the crown jewel of beautiful mind states. And the reason I believe that equanimity is given so much importance in Buddhist practice is that having an equanimous mind is the condition for completely letting go, for freedom. So we've begun this retreat by exploring cultivating equanimity in the body. And as we sit, as we transition from sitting to standing, as we stand, as we transition from standing to sitting. And as most of you know, our primary practice here at IMC is cultivating mindfulness. And so I really want to encourage you today to bring your mindfulness, your focus, uh, to any time that you change your posture today. I found this to be really useful because um, it's during these transitions that we most easily lose our mindfulness and the monkey mind starts churning out some story. Um, and in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha, all, the Buddha de- describes uh, in a whole mindfulness practice, which is mindfulness of postures. So knowing when you're going from one posture to another. So as you, tr- as you make physical transitions today, see if you can keep your mindfulness grounded in your physical experience. So in addition to uh, cultivating attention to the body as a way of developing equanimity, um, I want to explore with you how we might uh, develop equanimity through wisdom and insight and also through the heart. So body, mind, and heart. Those of you who are familiar with... um, this practice, know that we have a lot of Dharma lists. And it's, it's interesting that every time equanimity is in one of these Dharma lists, it always comes last. It's always the ultimate thing. So it's the tenth of the ten paramis, 
the Ten Perfections of Buddhahood. It's the seventh of the seven factors of awakening. It's the fourth of the four forms of love, the Brahma Viharas, or the divine abidings. And also, in the four jhanas, which are the states of deep meditative absorption, uh, it's equanimity that characterizes the fourth jhana. So equanimity is considered a wisdom factor, and it has a quality of honesty, of seeing things the way they are. So let's look at how we might bring wisdom and discernment to our cultivation of equanimity. As we see more and more deeply that all phenomena and all of our experience arises and passes away, this insight itself increasingly helps us to become more accepting of the way things are. So that rather than giving in to our tendency to be reactive, instead we begin to cultivate our ability to hold our seat in the midst of change, in the midst of things not going the way we'd like. And so as our wisdom grows, so does our equanimity. So in Buddhism, a key aspect of wisdom is deeply understanding uh, the three characteristics of, of existence. Dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, anicca, impermanence, and anatta, not self. And impermanence is really at the root of all of these. Um, it's at the root of unsatisfactoriness and non-self. So the Buddha teaches that all of our conditioned phenomena, all of our experience, is fundamentally unsatisfactory because everything that arises is going to pass away. And ultimately, we're all going to be separated from everything that we love. So as we begin to know this more and more deeply, we begin to be able to find some kind of balance with it and to hold our seat in the midst of all these changes. And impermanence is also at the root of the Buddha's teaching of not-self, because we and, and all beings were changing so fast that when we really look closely, there's uh, nothing we can actually identify as the self. But this insight, uh, as you probably know, goes against our deepest conditioning, and we have a really hard time uh, letting go of it, letting go of this precious self that we're so enamored of. But in reality, as soon as we identify something as ourself, it's already changed into something else. So I think it's helpful to, you know, to see ourselves more as part of this great web. And the more we, we can see that, the less we cling to our identification with our own bodies and our own minds. And then the more equanimity can arise naturally 
And as this happens, then the heart also becomes increasingly free. So I'd, I'd like to read to you a, a poem that I, I love a lot by Bridget Lowry. It's called In the World. This is an excerpt. In the strange early morning half-light we sit. In the cloudiness of our questioning we sit. In our madness and our clarity we sit. In the midst of too much to do we sit. In the warm arms of our shared sorrow we sit. In community and in loneliness we sit. In the blazing energy of being alive, we sit. Here with the cobwebs and the clouds and the dusty road upon us, us in the sound and the sound in us, us in the world and the world in us. So here we are in the midst of it all, us in the world and the world in us. And this is Tatra Maja Tata, being in the middle of it. Another way in which wisdom supports equanimity is when we understand that we're all responsible for our own actions. And this is the teaching of karma. So the Buddha describes karma as uh, an imponderable meaning that how things have gotten to be the way they are in any given moment is so incredibly complex that there's no way that we can know it all. No way we can know every single condition that has come together to give rise to a given situation. But what we can know is that we're the heir to our actions and that the choices we make in any given moment give rise to different scenarios. So although we'll never know all the conditions that have come together to produce a certain outcome, we do know that in each moment, every choice we make is a powerful determinant of what the next moment is going to be like. And this is why it's said that we're the heir to our actions. So our practice is to know uh, this is the way things are. We understand that things are the way they've come to be because of causes and conditions. And when we really grasp this law of cause and effect, it helps us to let go of struggling against the way things are when we're not happy with the situation. Another aspect of equanimity is that although we may dearly wish for the happiness and well-being of someone we love, we can't control the choices that they make. So this understanding that everyone's making their own choices and creating their own karma can help us to be more equanimous and more compassionate This is particularly so if we're faced with someone we love who's engaging in self-destructive behavior and 
we know that it's not wise to try to help. One of the most challenging circumstances for developing equanimity is when we're in the presence of intense suffering. So if our response to that suffering is indifference, then this is a far cry from equanimity. Because indifference comes from closing down. But equanimity comes from opening up. Indifference is a kind of aversion. And equanimity is the willingness to be present. So what distinguishes equanimity and indifference is the quality of love. So I think it's, it's really important to remember that equanimity doesn't in any way take away from our capacity to be compassionate. On the contrary, actually, because if we're equanimous, we have a way of being with suffering. And in the presence of someone who's suffering, we can offer peace instead of being in conflict. So one of the beautiful things is that as we start to let go of the struggle, there begins to be room for the heart to open. And little by little, we start to trust that maybe we can let go. As an example, um, we can reflect on, you know, what happens if, if some hurtful words come our way? You know, maybe we don't have to react. And maybe with the support of wisdom, we can uh, see the suffering of the person who is saying those words, and our response, instead of being negative, can be compassion. So we've talked about the near enemy of equanimity, which is indifference, but there's also a couple of far enemies. Uh, One of them is anxiety or excitement or agitation. Many of us struggle with with a restless mind. But when we get worried or too excited, we forget the truth of impermanence and the heart Uh, tends to close down. And the other far enemy of equanimity is attachment, or the opposite of attachment, which is aversion. So we're either grasping something or we're pushing it away. I'd like to read to you from one of the early Buddhist texts from the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length discourses of the Buddha. And this sutta is a teaching that the Buddha gives to his son, Rahula, who was an 18-year-old novice monk at the time. So here, the Buddha is giving his son advice on developing a meditation practice. So uh, as I read this to you, see if you can imagine what it was like for the young Rahula to be hearing this from his father, the Buddha. Just kind of put yourself in Rahula's shoes. 
he says. Rahula, developing meditation that is like the earth. But when you develop meditation that is like the earth, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as people throw clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood on the earth, and the earth is not repelled, humiliated, or disgusted because of that, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. So the Buddha first tells his son to develop meditation by being as non-reactive as the earth, and then he repeats it, um, the importance of this non-reactivity, by saying the same thing again with the other elements, the element of water, fire, of air, and even space, as a way of cultivating equanimity. For when you develop meditation like this, Arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. So it's an interesting image that we develop a peaceful mind by practicing meditation that's like the earth, accepting whatever comes along, whether it's agreeable or disagreeable. Then the Buddha instructs Rahula to develop meditation on the divine abidings, loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, as ways of abandoning the far enemies of these beautiful qualities of mind. So as we develop loving-kindness, ill-will is abandoned. As we develop compassion, cruelty is abandoned. As we develop sympathetic joy, discontent is abandoned. And when he gets to equanimity, the Buddha says, Rahula, develop meditation on equanimity. For when you develop meditation on equanimity, any aversion will be abandoned. So here the Buddha is teaching his son how to purify the mind through the practice of the divine abidings. And we learn that we'll know that we've developed equanimity when we've let go of aversion. So what this means is that as we cultivate equanimity, we start to entertain the idea that we don't have to turn away from things that we don't like so much anymore. We don't have to be upset. We can be okay with what comes our way. So, um, you know, true confessions, I have had a lot of reactivity in my life and I've really seen how much trouble it's gotten me into. And I think one of the really hopeful messages for me about Buddhism is that this is actually possible. That we can actually cultivate something like equanimity. It's a quality of being that can be developed, and especially through our meditation practice. So let's, let's take a look at 
what causes us to lose our equanimity. You may have heard of the eight worldly winds. And these are the conditions that tend to buffet us around. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute. And boy, it is so easy to get caught by these. We love praise. Anybody here not love being praised? And we really don't want to be blamed. We really don't like that at all. But what the, the Buddha points out, that none of us, not even arhats, are immune to being blamed. He, he used the example of uh, teaching the Dharma and, um, you know, this... Arhat is, is teaching the Dharma and uh, somebody complains because um, he didn't say enough. So then the person comes back and then he tries a, you know, a middle amount and then the person says, no, nah, no, nah, that's, that's, you know, that's not right either. And then somebody else comes back and so then he goes into a long, lengthy explanation of the teaching and the complaint is, oh, boy, he's really just talking way too much. So what's interesting is that um, what the Buddha teaches is that the solution is not saying the right amount. The solution is not getting caught in the blame. You know, letting it just come and go. So, you know, all of these eight worldly winds are... Um, are very uh, treacherous and they all, we can all... For all of them, we can start to have ways of dealing with them that are less reactive. So take gain and loss. You know, maybe there's some way that we can relate to success that is skillful. Maybe there's some way that we can relate to failure that's more equanimous. And then there's pleasure and pain. You know, we're we're all going to be faced with pain at some point in our lives if we're not faced with it already. And, you know, it can be really humbling to notice how much of what we do is trying to avoid discomfort. I remember Joseph Goldstein giving a talk once, and, he, and he, he, what he was saying was that every single movement that we do is actually trying to get away from something that we don't like. It's, it's amazing how, how this, you know, the pleasure draws us and discomfort or pain, we're, all, we're, we're just completely caught by trying to get away from it. And then there's fame. Now, how seductive is that? But, you know it often turns into something else. You know, you may be famous for a while and then you're not so famous. And, you know, you get caught with something and then there's disrepute. So if we can develop some non-reactivity to the positive winds that push us towards the pleasurable states uh, and then non-reactivity to the negative winds that blow us away from pain, it doesn't mean that we avoid being present. On the contrary, if we can be non-reactive um, 
and equanimous in the face of these storms, then we really can be balanced and present. And when we can be there for ourselves, the beautiful thing is that we can also be there for others. So the eight worldly winds are a great opportunity for bringing wisdom to bear. So, you know, see the praise coming and recognize, ah, that's praise. And then remembering the truth of impermanence, the truth of not-self. And then remembering that before we get caught by the praise, you know, that, that we see it coming. And we can, maybe we can see the kindness of the person offering it to us but we have the wisdom not to take it so personally and the wisdom to let it go. And again, this is how mindfulness is the, the linchpin in, in everything we do because we don't get to seeing it before we get caught unless we have our mindfulness in, in operating. So having the wisdom to know what a, a setup, something like praise can be, a setup for getting caught in the ego. And so I think it's maybe a bit easier to work with the positive of the worldly winds, um, but they, that can be a good example, uh, a good training in how to work with the more difficult negative worldly winds. So if we can learn to let go of praise, then the next time somebody comes and blames us for something, we'll have some experience um, in letting go of that kind of thing. And once again, you know, mindfulness is really the critical element in all of this because if we don't see it coming, if we don't remember what a trap it is, we get caught before we know it and we're already reacting. I can tell you. I know. (laughs) But the beauty of letting go of these positive and seductive worldly winds is that we don't need any of them to be okay. And once we get the fact that of how deeply okay we really are, this too is a beautiful gift that we can give to other people. And it's where equanimity becomes an expression of love and even an expression of universal love. So I want to talk um, about how we can cultivate equanimity. So as is the case for many practices that we want to cultivate, it's really useful to begin by setting our intention. So one of the things you can do is to make the conscious decision to wish for yourself to live with ease. We can vow to greet our experience with an open heart. To greet each moment as a friend. And practice with that. Try it out. Experiment with it. And certainly the most powerful tool that we have in the cultivation of equanimity is mindfulness. And especially being mindful when equanimity is absent. So if we lose our equanimity... This is a great time to investigate. Okay, how did I get here? And it's really 
helpful to look carefully at what makes us lose our balance. So one of the most useful practices, another one in cultivating equanimity, is simply to slow down. Because when we slow down enough, when we can be here in this body, in this moment, And I'm, I'm sure you know uh, from your practice, when we lose mindfulness, we just keep coming back. And we come back with kindness for that person who's lost it. Come back with an open heart. And the moment that we come back, it's really useful to remember that thing about choice, about karma. That... Um, Now that we've come back, we have a choice about how we respond to what's happening. And the Buddha says, uh, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of one's mind. And this is completely borne out by contemporary neuroscience. And what the Buddha means is that if we think angry thoughts, well, it will tend to be irritable. If we practice acceptance, on the other hand, we'll incline the mind towards equanimity. So the power of this practice is that little by little we can actually reinvent ourselves by focusing on mindfulness. And the more we do it, the more our neural pathways light up. So what we're doing here in this practice is training our hearts and minds to be less anxious and more open. And little by little, we can bring that calm, cool quality of equanimity to more and more aspects of our life. So with this practice, our default reaction to difficult situations becomes love and acceptance rather than judgment or ill will, or fear, or aversion. So during your practice today, notice how your mind and your heart respond to cultivating equanimity in the body. And also notice how wisdom and equanimity reinforce each other. Equanimity allowing you to see more clearly, and wisdom allowing you to be less reactive and more equanimous. And in the same way, how equanimity and opening the heart reinforce each other. How being more balanced helps you to open your heart. And how opening your heart helps you to live equanimity with a sense of love. So I'll close now with... um, a quote from my dear root teacher, the Zen master Shinryu Suzuki Roshi. He says, This is the very nature of life. No one in this world experiences only pleasure and no pain, and no one experiences only gain and no loss. When we open to this truth, we discover that there's no need to hold on or to push away. Rather than trying to control what cannot be controlled, we can find a sense of security in being able to meet 
what is actually happening. This is allowing for the mystery of things. Not judging, judging, but rather cultivating a balance of mind that can receive what's happening, whatever it is. This acceptance is the source of our safety and our confidence. I love that. Acceptance is a source of safety and confidence. So... We have a few minutes if you'd like to uh, make any comments or ask any questions. Do you have the mics? Uh, the poem you read earlier, uh, that was by... Bridget Lowry. Bridget Lowry. In the world, I wanted to ask about how we can practice equanimity alongside a sense of spiritual urgency, um, maybe a, a fear of death or a fear of not having the opportunity to practice earnestly, who knows what will happen. So how to hold those two skillfully? And those are the conditions where we most need equanimity. I think, um, you know, it, it, will be, it will be different for everyone, but I think uh, plunging into the situation and really trying to stay present for it and opening the heart is the best way. You know, just, just try. It's, it's true that, you know, something like the fear of death or um, any of those eight worldly winds are, are they're, they're very agitating. But, you know, if we bring wisdom to bear, and we can find ways of, of letting go. And mindfulness of the body, it's a, it's a great way to get the calmness that we need to be able to let go. So I think it's, you know, it's sort of like the, the Nike slogan, just do it, you know. But the more you do it, the, the more um, natural it will become. And one of the things that's really helpful is to notice when we're equanimous. So if you have a moment of equanimity, don't just, you know, zap it. You know, savor it. And that will, uh, you know, it helps, it helps us to learn what it means to be equanimous. And we come back to it that much more easily the next time. Um, I had an experience yesterday of losing equanimity. Um, when I got an email about a, transact, a financial transaction that hadn't gone ahead. And um, so I emailed in response. I got myself really quite agitated about it. I had to go to the office and deal with it. And 
my agitation was really out of proportion to the seriousness of the situation. And um, what I realized is with emails and with other situations, if I'm feeling agitated about something, it's not the time to act. I need to really let it sit and regain my composure because in acting the way I did, you know, I'd upset several other people. So blaming and complaining. and So so while sometimes when I feel a sense of urgency, there isn't really a sense of urgency. And even if there is, even if I feel the sense of urgency, I need to just sit with it for a while. Yeah, it's like the best way to go fast sometimes is to go slow. You know, to to slow down, and then then the wisdom can come to bear, and you say, oh, "Okay, I'm done." I really uh, enjoyed your discussion of equanimity. Thank you. But my question is about uh, standing meditation. I've never done a guided standing meditation before. It was really great. But I felt myself kind of wondering about the object of meditation. So I was just going to ask you, do you recommend that you still maintain uh, mindfulness of breathing or that we're more like scanning the body for ease or doing both? Or I don't know, I found my mind kind of wandering a lot, wondering if if I should have a particular anchor or object or if you recommend one or if you could comment, that'd be great. Thank you. Sure. Yeah, standing meditation is not easy. And it's interesting to see how it's not easy. Um, So what I was suggesting in the beginning is that we try to bring the same quality of mindfulness, the same practice that we do do in sitting to standing. So if uh, the mindfulness that we practice in our sitting is mindfulness of breathing, bring that to the standing meditation. If uh, it's often useful uh, to do a body scan, we did this morning. We did a little body scan in the beginning of the sit. We did a little body scan in the beginning of standing. And once you've done that, that's you know keeps you grounded. And then uh, same practice as sitting. Great, thank you. Okay, thank you very much. So, um, 